to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. In chapter 6 from verse 4 we get one of these passages of warning. And it's a particularly solemn warning because it speaks of an impossibility, do you notice, an impossibility of restoration for a certain kind of person. And that's why this passage is so solemn. And that's why it has caused so much distress to many people. Let's uh, just look at verses 4 to 6. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy... And the word is a a word which literally means to fall away since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. Now that really is a very difficult passage because it does speak to us in clear language about the impossibility of restoring a certain group of people. Now as we approach a difficult passage like this, It seems to me that it's precisely here that we need to remind ourselves of some of the basic principles on which we are to interpret and understand the scriptures. That's a very important thing coming to a passage like this. There are certain principles, you see, that derive out of the whole of scripture itself by which scripture is to be interpreted. And I think it's perhaps of, of importance for us to remind ourselves of one one or two of these which apply to this particular passage this evening. But they have, of course, a much wider application. Principles for interpreting and rightly understanding Scripture. The first of them I would put uh, in this way, and I'm just going to mention them to you so that you have them in mind, is the principle of simplicity. That is that we interpret Scripture according to the natural plain sense of it in the light of the fact that what God has given us in Holy Scripture is a revelation. He has intended to make clear to us his truth and therefore the primary way in which we interpret Scripture is on the principle of simplicity, taking the plain sense, the natural meaning first of all of the Scripture. The second principle I call the principle of clarity That is, we interpret the less clear passages by the more clear passages. And it is true that there are some passages of Scripture which are more difficult to understand. But the way that we approach these is on this principle of clarity, seeking to interpret the less clear by the more clear and in the light of the more clear. The third principle that seems to me to apply here to is the principle of consistency. That is the conviction that scripture never contradicts itself. That there is an inner consistency about scripture. And that of course is very simply based upon the character of God. Who himself is a God of utter and absolute consistency. God is a God who cannot lie who does not contradict himself. Therefore, Scripture as his given word is 
inwardly consistent. It never contradicts itself. And we begin with that conviction. We interpret scripture from that basis. And the other uh, principle that seems to me important here is what I call the principle of unity, by which I mean the unity of the particular book that we are studying, or even of the particular section of it. And it's a very important thing for us to interpret Scripture in that way, on this basis, that the book that we are studying is itself a unity. Incidentally, that's why it's a very important thing, not just to be minute in your study of Scripture, but to have a broad grasp of the general message of each book of the Bible. There are various ways in which I may elaborate some other time to you in which it's possible to do that, but that's a very important thing. What is the general thrust of this particular book, of the Epistle to the Hebrews, for example? What is the general thrust of First uh, John? This is the kind of thing. Now, there is a unity, you see, in the message of the book, and that means that we interpret the text in the light of the context. That is, you don't just wrest a text of Scripture out of its context, you'd interpret it in the light of its context. That is, what is the whole passage about? In what context does this particular uh, part of Scripture appear? And the passage in the light of the whole chapter or theme. Now let's, uh, having these things in our mind, the principle of simplicity, of clarity, of consistency, and of unity, try to understand this difficult passage against that background. The general situation to which the writer of Hebrews is addressing himself here is to a hard-pressed group of believers who are suffering and being persecuted in various ways. Many of them are weak and showing signs of the danger, at least, of drifting, of falling away. There are evidences of spiritual weaknesses in these believers to whom he is writing. And the epistle is therefore an exhortation, as we have found. It's a word of exhortation. He says, suffer the word of exhortation. And it is an exhortation to them to go on, to persevere, to press on in the race. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. This is a word of exhortation addressed to beleaguered believers. Now, in that context, the apostle strikes this remarkable balance that we have seen by encouragement and exhortation as he holds the hope before them and does that in this very chapter, incidentally. And on the other hand, he has the balance of a word of stern warning to them about the very prospect and possibility of falling away, of committing apostasy. And it is in that general, against that general background that this solemn danger of a certain kind of person is to be seen, whom it is impossible to restore again to repentance. The RSV speaks of them committing apostasy in verse 6. If they then commit apostasy. And other versions speak of falling away, which is, as I was saying, really the literal and probably the better translation. Now, there are several questions we need to ask of this passage. And the first is, obviously, who are these people to whom he is speaking in such 
dreadful terms. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. These people who have committed apostasy, crucified the Son of God on their own account, and hold him up to contempt. Well now, there are five things that are said about them if you look at verses 4 and 5. And this is how they are, they are described. And I want just to look at the description the apostle gives us of these people, first of all. First, they were once enlightened, verse 4. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. Now that must mean that in some sense, the light of the gospel had dawned upon these people. The Old Testament idea of enlightenment is, of course, of instruction. And since the epistle to the Hebrews is written to Hebrews, it's important for us to understand the Old Testament significance of some of these terms. And the Old Testament significance of enlightened is instructed or illuminated in some sense. And at the very least, I think what we would have to say is that these people to whom he is writing have had a real work of illumination in their mind and understanding regarding the truth. That's the first thing. They were enlightened. Here is the second. They had tasted the heavenly gift. That is, they had had some experience. And like these other categories of tasting which you get in verse 5, it does clearly refer to experience. You experience something by tasting it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist appeals. Now, tasting something is a means of experiencing. And the heavenly gift would probably, I think, refer to the blessings which came in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is supremely the heavenly gift. And there is some sense in which these people have tasted the blessings that are associated with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that John Owen, who has a mammoth commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews, John Owen, you know, who is Sinclair's great friend, uh, he uh, points out the difference between tasting and swallowing, tasting and digesting. And it may be that there is a difference here. There is a difference between tasting of the heavenly gift and actually receiving and digesting it. Just put that away in the back of your mind for the time being. But that's the second thing. They have tasted the heavenly gift. The third is this. They are partakers of the Holy Spirit. The end of verse 4. They have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word is a word which speaks of communion with the Holy Spirit. And it simply says that they have had some experience of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives. That could be in terms of conviction of sin, for that is a ministry of the Holy Spirit and his primary ministry. It could be creating a desire for Christ or experiencing even something of his power in their lives, even to possess some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as I think is highly likely. And these people who had apostatized are people who have not only been once enlightened, 
tasted the heavenly gift, they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, they have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the beginning of verse 5. Now that must mean that the sheer worth and blessing and glory belonging to the message of the gospel as it is brought to us in the word of God must have been part of their experience. They must have known, I think one would say, the sheer thrill and glory of the word of God and the message of the gospel. And you could imagine that they might have been amongst the kind of people who would have gone out and said, what a glorious word that was to listen to. They had tasted the word of God. Fifthly, they had tasted the powers of the world to come. Verse 5. These powers are, I think, really the mighty works which accompanied the preaching of the gospel, especially in the apostolic age. And you will know that these powers and mighty works were signs that the age to come had broken into present time. That is, that the kingdom of God was here amongst men. These signs and wonders were an evidence of this, and there were many different signs and wonders. Do you remember the significant thing in this light of how people came to Jesus in uh, his, his account at the end of Matthew 25 and said, Many will come to me in that day and will say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many mighty works in thy name cast out demons? These are the powers of the age to come and they had experienced them. Now, this is a description then of these people, and it is a, a remarkable account when you read what the apostle is saying. It is impossible to restore to repentance such people if. That's who they are then. What has happened to them? Well, the answer in verse 6 is that they committed apostasy or fell away. What is it that has taken place that makes it impossible to restore them again to repentance. Well, the dreadful thing that the apostle is speaking about is this falling away. And in doing so, they crucify Christ afresh, he says. They crucify the Son of God on their own account. It's a difficult phrase to translate. And they hold him up or put him to an open shame, the authorized version says. Now, what that really means, whatever the translation it means that they openly and totally, and I think it's important to grasp this and to listen carefully to it, it means that openly and totally they abandoned their profession of Christianity and publicly denounced Christ and his gospel. That's what apostasy really means. They have brought shame and disgrace on the name of Christ a name that they doubtless once sang and now slander and ridicule, just as men did at the cross, who previously were calling Hosanna after Jesus, and now they were slandering him and mocking him and bringing shame upon him. And these people are the people in that very category, says the writer of the epistle. So what they have done is to openly and totally abandon their profession of Christianity, publicly denounce Christ 
and his gospel. Now, finally, what are the consequences? These are the three questions. Who are these people? What have they done? And what are the consequences of what they have done? Well, the answer is they cannot be brought to repentance, verse 4. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who once were enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift and so on, and now have fallen away in the sense who have turned their backs, who have publicly denounced and brought shame upon Christ, ridiculed him, crucified him afresh. And it is impossible to bring them to repentance. They have passed the point of no return, is what he apparently is saying. Now, I don't think you can say, as I know some commentators say, that this is an impossibility of a sort. Uh, there are certain things that are impossible, impossible to men, but not impossible to God, like putting a rich man into the kingdom or a camel through the eye of a needle. You remember they said, how can you get a camel through the eye of a needle? Who shall enter the kingdom? And Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. And people have said, this is another of these impossibilities. It is impossible for us to restore to repentance someone who has moved from the position of knowing the grace of God in this measure, of being touched by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, of having tasted something of the powers of the world to come, and then standing in the position of one who reviles and refuses Christ and brings him to an open shame. It is impossible for men to restore them, but not impossible for God. Now, I don't think you can really say that. I think this is an absolute impossibility. And I think what the apostle is saying to us, and here is where the plain sense comes in to me. The plain sense of this is it is impossible, a general impossibility. Now that impossibility is what chapter 12 tells us of Esau. If you turn over to chapter 12 and verse 17, you will notice that Esau, having become such a reprobate, as he is speaking of in chapter 6, afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place of repentance, as it literally is, not chance to repent, but place of repentance, though he sought it with tears. He found no repentance, and Esau is an illustration of this. And of course it is true above all of Judas Iscariot who found no place, he found a place of remorse, but he had come to the point where there was no place of repentance for him. So it is a very solemn warning pressed upon us here in the language, not only of verses 4, 5, and 6, but also of verses 7 and 8. And you will notice that it now turns to the language of a failure to produce the evidences of salvation. For land which has drunk the rain, verse 7, that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Now, these are solemn verses to have to read, and it, it does look as if 
What the apostle is saying here is similar in verses 7 to 8 to what Jesus says when he speaks of the fig tree that would not bear figs. And the master, the owner, came to it year after year and waited for the figs to be born. And then he said, why does it cumber the ground? Why is this fig tree lumbering the ground when it could be used for something else? And he pronounces judgment upon it. And its fruitlessness produces the curse of the owner. I say again, these are very solemn words. And what we all want to know, of course, is, is it not, do I read your minds correctly, were these people of whom he speaks true Christians, or were they not? Were they truly regenerate people? And is this really saying to us then that there is a point at which true Christian people can arrive where they have openly disgraced the name of Christ, turned their back upon him, and crucified the Son of God afresh, as it were, and find no place of repentance. Who are these people? Are they really true Christians? Well, I think the first answer to that question must be, you could well have thought so. Is that not so? You could well have imagined that these people were true Christians by what is said of some of them. They certainly looked like and sound like real Christians. And I think possibly one of the reasons we are left with such a question, and there is a sense in which I think we almost are left with the question, is that the author is anxious to press upon us the solemnity of the warning. You see, there are two dangers a kind of uh, Scylla and Charybdis, you know, two rocks on which you may equally shipwreck, uh, and you have got to steer between them. There are two dangers in reading a passage like this. One is the danger of being insensitive to it. And that's the great problem about the man who is always wanting to know, does Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 speak about a true believer? And I always want to know, why do you want to know whether Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 speaks about a true believer? So that you will be able to say, no, it definitely is not a true believer. Ah, that's a great relief. I can go off and do as I like now. That's a great sense of relief. Now, sometimes I think it's this insensitive reaction to this warning. The word for this kind of condition, you see, I think is when we have become so sure that part of Scripture has nothing to say to me, the word of God for that is, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And it is an important thing for us, beloved, to take this kind of passage seriously. But the other danger, and I think I would honestly have to say it's the danger that I come across more frequently, is the danger of the oversensitive soul. The child of God who is depressed and cast down frequently, I think, who comes to a passage like this and is driven almost to despair. I don't know how many people I find who in the aftermath of flu seem to find themselves reading uh, Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. You know, Now you will know that, uh, if I may intrude in the realm of the medical people here, uh, when you have had flu, one of the things that follows it is something of a depression, and there are people who spiritually find themselves in great distress by a passage like this. Let me therefore try to shed further light upon it. 
by saying one or two things to you about what this passage is not speaking of. What is this passage not speaking about? First, it is not addressing us on the subject of sin in the Christian. For the simple reason that there is healing and forgiveness and cleansing for that. There is pardon for sin in the life of the Christian. And God has made, as 1 John 2 makes clear to us, at the beginning of 1 John 2 and the end of 1 John 1, God has made double provision for the sinning Christian. One is the crucified Savior who has, by the shedding of his blood, made God able to promise to men, if we confess our sins, he is able and he is just and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the other great provision he has made for the sinning Christian is Christ who is the advocate above. He is the propitiation for our sins by his death on the cross. And we have an advocate with the Father who is able to plead our cause at the right hand of God. So he is not speaking of sin in the Christian because due to the inner consistency of Holy Scripture, you could never conclude that if we are talking here about sin in the Christian simply, then there is no place of repentance. The second thing that he is not speaking about is backsliding in a general sense. You know the kind of condition that many Christians have experienced and many of you will be able to look back in your life to a period of backsliding when over a considerable period of time for some people you have drifted away from God. You have known what it is for the wilderness to enter your soul and you have backslidden into a place of disobedience, for example. Now, the word of God for that condition is one to awaken us out of our spiritual torpor and sleep, but to say to us, I will heal their backslidings. I will love them freely. The whole of the prophecy of Hosea is about this, about God, the healer of the backsliding nation, about the God who longs to draw the backslider back to himself. The third thing that this passage is not speaking to us about is this. It is not saying that a true child of God is ever eternally lost. For that would be an assault upon the whole tenor of Scripture and upon its consistency. It would be an assault on the trustworthiness of Jesus, for example, who says, No man shall pluck them out of my hand. It would be an assault on the very nature of salvation, which is to give to us a new birth. And you cannot take away the new birth or the eternal life. If our life in Christ is eternal life, by definition, it cannot end. It is eternal life and therefore it is everlasting, unending life. And it would also be to deny what God has pledged himself to do in us, none hindering. And that is from the time that he looks upon us in mercy and chooses us in Christ to our justification in Christ through our sanctification to our glorification, 
God will go on doing this and nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. We are brought into such a realm as this of the purpose of God and we are able therefore to glory in a God who does not leave his work unfinished. But it is telling us that although the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true, it is the saints who persevere. And in verses 7 to 8, the apostle is speaking about the marks of the saint. What are the signs of the true saint? Well, the marks of the true saint are the bringing forth of fruit. Not simply that they have some profession to make. Not that they have some outward reputation. Not even that they have known something of these signs and wonders. But the evidence of godly spiritual fruit. And this is one of the great emphasis of this. And that is why he is urging them, let us go on, he says, leaving the elementary things, leaving spiritual babyhood. Let us go on. And the appeal is an exhortation to them to perseverance. So this word, you see, this word with all its solemnity, which we need to take with the utmost seriousness, this word is intended not to depress us, or to leave us with some sense of despair and hopelessness, but to galvanize us into going on with God. That's why verse 9 follows on, and the apostle says, Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved. Now, here he is addressing these Christian brothers and sisters of the Hebrew dispersion. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And the authorized version, I think, goes on, and the things that accompany salvation. Now, the better things, you see, that he sees in them, we are assured of this. Do you see this pastoral heart that the apostle has? He says, we are persuaded that this is not the condition you are in. You are not in the condition of those who have apostatized and openly shamed the Son of God. But there is the warning, he says, take it seriously. But for you... We are persuaded that we have found in you the things that accompany salvation. And he tells them of this. Have you noticed that? He actually tells them that he sees these evidences of grace in their lives. Do we encourage one another enough in this way? We are ready to tell one another of our faults, you know. Somebody said in Canada about a minister, and I was in his home, and uh, you wouldn't know him, so please don't try and guess who I'm talking about. But I was in his home, and his wife and family were sitting there too, and his wife said to me when I said something that I, I had greatly appreciated in what he had been saying, and, and I, I said to his children, because I think it's important to tell the children of people like that, I said to his children something of what their father had meant to me at a different time, uh, some years ago, and uh, the children just uh, looked a little bit sarcastically, and uh, his wife said, well, we never tell him that sort of thing in case he, case he gets swollen-headed, you know. Well, I knew well what she meant. There is a great ministry in the manse of keeping him humble, but I think it's a tremendously important thing, you know. It's a tremendously important thing to be encouragers of the brethren, to have a pastoral heart that sees the need in people. Now, here are these people, you see, weak, beleaguered, under pressure. What do they have need of? They have need of stern warning. 
but they also have need of gracious, sweet encouragement. And the apostle has this beautiful balance in his pastoral ministry. Sometimes we want all the sweet encouragement, you know, and there is nothing more sickening in the nostrils of God or distressing in the ears of any sensible man than flattery. But encouragement is a different thing altogether, and this is what the apostle is ministering to these people. We are persuaded of different things of you and the things that belong to salvation. And so he writes to awaken them from all spiritual slumber and sluggishness. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And their work and their love, of course, is no meritorious cause of their salvation or of God's approval, but the evidence of their salvation. And we desire, verse 11, each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the great safeguard against this horrifying picture that you have in these previous solemn verses is... First of all, in the strong encouragement that God has given, and this is what he writes about in the rest of the chapter, together with the steadfast anchor that he has provided for us. The strong encouragement. Do you notice the strong encouragement of which he speaks in verse 18? That God, he says, that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. Now that's the picture you see. He wants to galvanize them to be the kind of people who are seizing, reaching forward for the hope of glory that is set in front of them. Not in any sense looking back, not looking even at themselves, but looking forward and upward to the glory that God has set before them. This is the strong encouragement that he gives them and also the steadfast anchor to enable them to remain steady and to persevere. Look at the strong encouragement, will you, in just a moment. It's found in three things. The first element in this strong encouragement is God's unchanging purpose in verse 17. He is speaking about the imitation they are to have of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And of course the great illustration is Abraham. Abraham throughout the whole of the New Testament is the great illustration of faith as opposed to apostasy, of pressing on and persevering even when he was called to go out into an inheritance that he didn't see and didn't fully understand. He went out and believed God. And he says when God, verse 17, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. There's the first strong encouragement. The unchangeable character of his purpose. And this unchanging purpose of God for his people is to bring their salvation to completion in glory, you see. Now, the reason that Abraham is the ultimate example of this is that the purpose of God for Abraham was a purpose that endured from generation to generation. 
People lived and died and their fathers lived and died and they didn't ultimately see the end of the purpose that God had for Abraham. We read about it in Genesis at the beginning that God covenanted himself with Abraham in verse 13 when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you and his promise to Abraham was a promise that ultimately was only fulfilled in Jesus. And so when we open the pages of the New Testament, we begin to read Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. And this is God, the God of whom the, the old man Simeon and Zacharias too sang the promise that he had made to Abraham, our father. He has fulfilled it, he says. Now here is the great example of endurance, you see. That Abraham went on into the future believing God because he had an unchanging purpose. And the strong encouragement that we have is that God has an unchanging purpose for us. Do you know that great hymn that comes next to the one we sang? A debtor to mercy alone. Bob and I decided that perhaps you might not know the tune and we would save ourselves together from the all singing different tunes, but it's a marvelous hymn, and I hope you may find blessing in reading it. Do you notice verse 4 of that hymn, which says, The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete his promises, yea, and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Nothing can sever me from the love of God. Nothing can make God forego his purpose. His purpose is an unchanging purpose, and it's a purpose of grace. That's the first strong encouragement. The second is God's unbreakable promise. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Abram took God and his word seriously, you see. And the important thing within our context is that men who do not take God's promises seriously will one day have to take his threats seriously. And these really, in a sense, are the alternatives. We either live taking the promises of God with absolute seriousness, or we discover ourselves having to take the threats of God with solemn seriousness. And Abraham's life was a life of strong encouragement to those who came after him because he rested on the promise of God and became a pilgrim. He didn't become a perfect pilgrim, incidentally. Abraham knew what it was to fail. Abraham knew that there were weaknesses in his character which even the world found out and he was brought into shame when he went down into Egypt. He disobeyed God. It wasn't a perfect pilgrimage. But Abraham's whole life, the general movement of Abraham's life, the general tendency of the graph, you know, it's like the graph of the cost of living often, I think, the real Christian life. You know that sometimes it goes down for a little while, but you can be very sure that in the long term its general tenor is upwards. Now that's the general pattern of the Christian's life. 
His life is a general tenor of going onwards and upwards as a pilgrim towards glory, resting on the promises of God. And that's what Abraham was doing. And God's unbreakable promises he found were absolute. What God promised he was also able to perform. And the perseverance of the saints, beloved, the thing that makes us sure that we can say in the words of that hymn, Yes, I to the end shall endure. How do you know that you will be able to endure? The thing that gives you that confidence is this twofold strong encouragement. The unchanging purpose of God and the unbreakable promises of God. And on that ground, we shall endure to the end. And the third strong encouragement comes from God's unique oath. You notice verse 16. Men indeed swear by a greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he interposed an oath, but it was a unique oath. Because, you see, when we are going on oath, as it were, in a court, for example, we are required to place our hand in a Bible and swear by something greater than ourselves, and commonly that is God. I swear by Almighty God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and en uh, ever, uh, anything but the truth. You know, <laughs> nothing but the truth. That's what I do. But you swear by something greater than yourself. You see, now the apostle is saying this. God has nothing greater than himself that he can swear by. So he swears by his own name. But isn't it astonishing? That in his care for his weak and needy children, the God of the whole earth whose word is his bond, stoops to the level of going on oath so that we may be sure of his purpose. He has no need to do this. We have need to do it because we are not trustworthy. But God has no need to do it. But he stoops to this level because he is burdened for us that we should be well secured and founded and persevere to the end. His unique oath. Finally, will you notice the sure and steadfast anchor that God has given to us? We have this, that is, this, and this hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, verse 19, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. And that sure and steadfast anchor is a hope that is firmly fixed in the ascended and glorified Savior who has entered within the veil. And it is as though we were secured by an unbreakable chain, and it is the unbreakable chain of the purposes of God. Can you picture this in what Paul says? Whom he did foreknow, them he also predestined, and them he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. There is an unbreakable chain in the purposes of God, and that is anchored within the veil already where Jesus has gone to be our forerunner. Do you see the picture? It's rather not so much like the picture of an anchor from a ship as that kind of anchor you may have seen 
the climber throw up onto the top of a cliff, you know. And once it is anchored in some secure place, held in some secure ground, he is able to hold it. And that takes the strain. And then he is able to climb securely or to be pulled into harbor to change the figure because the anchor is already there, you see. Now there is an unbreakable chain and there is a steadfast, sure anchor within the veil. That is where we are going. Jesus has entered it. And the fact that he is there is the absolute guarantee that you will be there too. One day by his grace. All the guarantees that we believe. The guarantees that we are we are silly enough to believe in this world. Have you got a guarantee with it? Oh, yes, I've got a guarantee. But, oh, beloved, how slow we are to believe the guarantee that God has given us in the forerunner who has entered into the holiest for us. And we are secure eternally. But you see what that security and that glorious hope should do for us is to deliver us from all sluggishness of spirit and enable us to seize earnestly the hope that is set before us, to turn our back upon this horrible picture of apostasy and of making shame of the name of our blessed Savior and of reaching forward to the glory which he has secured for us by his entry. And by his grace we may live live even like men of Abraham's caliber because we have more than Abraham had. We have one who is within the veil for us, even Christ, our Savior. Let us pray together. Blessed Lord, we thank thee for thy word and we bless thee for the lavish provision thou hast made for thy children. We thank thee for our crucified, risen, ascended, and glorified Savior, who as the author and finisher, the Alpha and Omega of our faith, has begun a good work in us and has secured for us eternally a place in thy glory. Oh, enable us this evening, we pray, to take strong comfort and not weak comfort, from thy word and grant that our whole being may be set upon earnestly reaching forward day by day that we may possess our possessions in Christ Jesus. To thy name we give all the praise and honor and glory now and forevermore. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888.
This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.